0: All right guys, I want you to do me a favor and make a little mental list this morning. We'll ask for five because you've got five fingers handy here, and you can just you can keep, uh, keep your mental list right there on your fingers. If, if you're like me, mental lists don't last very long, but this one won't have to last long. I want you to think of the first five attributes of God that come to you. I want you just to just take a second and, and think of the first five. Alright, did anyone think of um, omniscience, which means God knows everything? Raise your hand if you thought of that one. Okay, several folks put that on there. Uh, how about omnipotent, meaning all-powerful? Yeah, several of us. Uh, how about omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere? Alright, we've got some folks that have heard those O words. Uh, how about loving? How about wise? Alright, those are, those are great ones. How about holy? Yeah, those are all good and true, but did anyone in their top five think of joyful? Anybody? Okay, Uh, there's nothing wrong with that because there are lots of them, and if we listed 20, we'd eventually get around to joyful probably. The point is that joyful is probably not high on any of our lists about the attributes of God. Nevertheless, God is supremely joyful. Joyful. Now, we kind of think, how could he be, right? With Satan in full rebellion against him, with the demons in rebellion against him, with evil men and women who reject him, and even with folks like me who love him and try to serve him but screw up all the time. How could he be joyful? Well, I want to ask you how can you be joyful in light of current events? Guys, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness depends on the things that are happening, <laughs> and there are bad things happening. So it's, it's hard to be happy about the things that are happening. But we're going to see today the things that make Jesus joyful. Um, there's one place in Scripture and it's repeated in parallel verses in the Gospels. But there's one place in Scripture that speaks about Jesus being joyful. Now, don't let that make you think that he wasn't joyful. He was supremely joyful, and I'll show you why today. But he was joyful not in the fact that he recently was barred from even coming into this town, shown no hospitality. He wasn't joyful in the fact that... um, Many, many, many people heard him, saw miraculous signs, and yet rejected his message. He wasn't happy about the fact that within the calendar year, he was going to be crucified. None of this was making him happy, but he had tremendous joy. Hopefully, we'll see today some of the reasons for Jesus' joy. You know, we sing this wonderful song called Man of Sorrows, and rightly so. The Bible talks about Jesus as being a man of sorrows. Uh, Luke nine forty one. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He was not happy. He was tired of faithlessness. He was fussing because uh, this guy had a son who was demon possessed and the 12 that he sent out, he gave them authority, if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, over all unclean spirits and yet they couldn't cast this one out. Why? Because they didn't believe him. They didn't take him at his word. So he was uh, upset with his disciples there and just saying, man, I am tired of this. <laughs> you guys, can you not believe me by now? Jesus was rejected and almost murdered in his own hometown. In Luke four twenty-eight, if we remember our study there, when they heard these things, meaning the sermon that Jesus preached... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In chapter 13, we will see when we get there that Jesus mourned over Jerusalem. In verse 34 of Luke 13, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. In chapter 19 he wept over Jerusalem's blindness and rejection of him. In verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19 he says and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it. "...saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes." Now who who needs to make peace? The people of Jerusalem need to make peace with God. And Jesus is saying, man, if you could have just seen this way of peace that I'm bringing to you. "...for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side..." And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. For the sake of time, I'll stop there, but we see that Jesus had a lot of things to be unhappy about, and to mourn about, and to have sorrow over. We know about Jesus' sorrow, but the subject I want to look at today is Jesus' joy. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we we need joy. We need joy that is grounded in permanent things. Father, it's so easy to become distracted, to become worried, to become just sick at heart, and perhaps sick physically over the things that are going on in our country. We see rebellion. We see lawlessness. We see disdain for you, for your law, uh, for your word. And, Lord, it, it becomes distressing because we've been spoiled to, uh, to not live in an America like that. Father, we've been spoiled to live in a place where uh, the Constitution was uh, revered, was respected, where law was respected, where even your fellow man was somewhat respected. Uh, but, Lord, those days are gone. And we, we mourn over those, and I think we rightly should. But, Father, help us put our joy in the things that cannot change, the things that will not change. Help us find our joy in the things that Jesus found his joy in and finds his joy in. Lord, we pray that you will teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read our passage together in Luke 10, 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced. Now again, let me tell you, this is the only place in Scripture that talks about Jesus rejoicing. And you remember last week, what he was rejoicing about was those 70 or 72 guys coming back and telling him, hey, we have had success. Uh, we have overcome these evil spirits. And Jesus said, that's great. Uh, yeah, I know. I saw it. I understood what was going on. And I've given you the power to do that. But I tell you what, don't, don't just so much fix your joy there. Fix your joy in the fact of our relationship. In the fact that your names are written in the book of life. So, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Before we see what Jesus was rejoicing about, let's not miss this clear reference to the Trinity in verse 21. Now, when people talk about, well, the Trinity's not in Scripture. Normally, we would take them to the baptism of Jesus. And that's a great place to take them because Jesus the Son was being baptized. God the Father was speaking out of heaven. And God the Holy Spirit was descending like a dove. And we see all three persons. But we clearly see all three persons here as well. Because we see that it says Jesus was rejoicing in the Spirit. So there's the Son and the Spirit. And then he begins to address the Father. So this is again a really clear place for us to see the Trinity in Scripture. Our first point is Jesus rejoices in the Father's will. In verse 21 read it with me again. It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. What things? The truths of God, the truths of the gospel and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So he is rejoicing in the gracious will of his father. God has hidden the truth of the gospel from the wise and understanding, and revealed it to little children. Let's take a few minutes to to chew on that. Now, what is the opposite of wise and understanding? Well, I suppose it would be foolish and ignorant. So, is God saying you need to be foolish and ignorant so that you can understand the truths of the gospel? No, He's not saying that that should be our aim. He's saying that worldly wisdom and education, apart from God's word and God's activity, will not lead people to salvation. Now, we've got to ask, why can't worldly people find God on their own? Now, on their own is the key there, okay? Uh, The Apostle Paul was one of the smartest, one of the most educated individuals ever to walk the earth. And yet he understood the truths of God. So it's not that those who are wise and educated can't find God. It's that they can't find God apart from God revealing himself to them by his will. So Paul was brilliant and his brilliance didn't lead him to God. His brilliance made him a very effective persecutor of the church until God revealed himself to Paul. Then his world was changed and he could apply that wonderful intellect To the writing of scripture and the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Consider for a second Jonathan Edwards. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, uh, a lot of folks think he was the greatest intellect ever produced in North America. Um, Brilliant, brilliant guy. Scientist, theologian, kind of everything else you could think of. This guy would be the first to tell you, I've read some of his writings, it'll make your head hurt, I promise, but I've read some of his writings and he would be the first to tell you that apart from God's direct will and revelation, he would not know God. So we can't come to God through just our intellect. And the first reason for that is the minds of the lost have been blinded to the gospel. Second Corinthians four explains this to us. It says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. What are disgraceful, underhanded ways? Look here. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul said, hey, we're not going to get so smart. We mess with the word of God and the truth of the gospel. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the Bible tells us clearly and plainly that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now I claim to be able to see. Why can I see if these other folks are blinded? Well let me tell you, there's, a, there's one right answer and a lot of wrong answers. Let me give you some wrong answers first. One is my intellect, alright? I could say that I'm smart enough to read the Bible to reason that uh, naturalistic evolution is, is foolishness. To reason that there are faults in these other religions that I've studied, and to say that the Bible is the most logical and rational thing that I can get my hands on, therefore I believe the Bible. Now, all that is true after my salvation, okay? It is the most reasonable explanation. Uh, when a scientist who, who is not talking about religion, but's actually talking about science, looks at Darwinian evolution, they can reason. With a, with a clear mind that it's insane. You can look at other world religions and realize the faults there and the, the problems that they have. And you can come back to the Bible and say, this is reliable, this is the most sensible thing, but only after God has revealed to you truth can you do that. It could be my righteousness. Well, let me tell you, if you knew me well, you'd know that that wasn't it. But I'm, you know a better neighbor than some folks i haven't exterminated millions of jews i haven't flown a plane into a building of people i'm better than some people right on the scorecard but it's not my righteousness because i don't have any it's not my upbringing i'm grateful for my upbringing i'm grateful for being reared in a christian tradition but that's not why i'm a believer the reason that i can see is god's grace Period. J.D. Greer tells a story of a guy who is on a roof. It's a made up story, but anyway, the guy's on the roof, and the guy's thinking about jumping, and he says, I'm a bird. He's convinced he's a bird. He's insane, but he's convinced he's a bird, and he says, I'm going to fly off this roof. Now, if you ask him, No, would you come down with me? Let's walk down the stairs. A hundred times out of a hundred, he's going to say, No, I'm going to fly off this roof because he's crazy and he thinks he's a bird. But if you had some sanity serum that you could jab in the guy and and plunge it in that would all of a sudden restore his mind, then a hundred times out of a hundred you could say, would you get off that ledge and walk down with me? And he'd say, yep, because he would see reality, right? That is what God, the Holy Spirit, does in us to make us able to see reality. You only decided to follow Jesus because the Spirit gave you a heart transplant and took the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And he cured your blindness, the blindness that was over your mind that we just read about. Um, Some folks don't like understanding that God is responsible for your salvation, completely responsible. But let me tell you, he is to the glory of God. That's the point we're supposed to get from this, is that if I'm saved, it's all to his credit. And that makes us worship more profoundly. Instead of uh, you know us thinking that God is great and I'm pretty great, <laughs> we think God is great and I didn't deserve this. Now, the second reason that worldly wise people cannot find God in, on their own is that if people could find God by human achievement, I guarantee it would produce pride. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us that. It says, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. What what is the this? Well, the only way I understand language is that the this refers to the last thing that was said. So it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, Why? So that no one may boast, because that's what we would do if it were up to us. If we could get to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel through human achievement, we would absolutely boast about it. Also, it would leave out a lot of people, wouldn't it? (laughs) If you had to have some sense to come to God, man, would it leave out a lot of people. And more and more by the day, I am convinced. Christians should boast, but they should only boast in the work of Christ, in their lives, Believers have a story to tell and we ought to be telling it, but we are not the hero of that story. God is. Now, the third reason that worldly wise people can't find God on their own is that people who are proud of their superior intellect cannot have a childlike faith. You know, we read in verse 21 that he hid these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. When we get to Luke 18, we're going to see Jesus talk more about little children. He's going to say, but Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child and whoever doesn't receive it like a child shall not enter it. So we can't come to God prideful and cynical and jaded. Now, we should approach our faith with our minds fully engaged, working hard to understand God's revelation, but I will never understand God completely. You know, I've heard some people say, well, we don't understand all of God's will completely until we get to heaven. Well, I'm still going to be a man in heaven. I'm not going to be God and God's ways are still going to be higher than my ways. So I don't know if I'll ever understand uh, a lot of things. I certainly won't ever understand God completely. We have a reasonable faith. And we can apply our reason to it. But our reason alone is not sufficient to bring us to God. Now, we shouldn't have a childish faith where we remain immature. But we should have a childlike faith that simply says, I trust my father and my father said this, therefore it is true. That's a good child thinks that way. A good child says, well, my father said it, so it's true. My father commanded me to do it, so I'm going to do it. That is a childlike faith. Um, we had a video uh, before the folks came to talk to us about sharing Way of the Master back a little while back. And uh, in that video, I asked, and I didn't ask Miss Carolyn if I could say this, so don't get mad at me. But I asked Miss Carolyn, um, why do you feel it's important to witness? And she gave me the most wonderful and profound answer. She said, because I read in the Bible that I was supposed to, so I figured I should do it. (laughs) And I said, that's awesome. That is a childlike faith. It's not a childish faith, but it's a childlike faith that says, oh, I'm supposed to do it? Okay, I'm going to do it. It's not my place to cross-examine God when he says something. I don't have the right to do it, and I certainly don't have the intellect to do it. The Father's will is to bring people into his kingdom with a childlike faith. But a childlike faith that simply and completely takes God at his word. Jesus rejoices in his Father's will and so should we. We sang wonderful songs today about how his kingdom is permanent. His kingdom is above all other kingdoms and thrones and all others will fall before him. And folks, that's true, and it's the thing that's going to be a permanent source of joy in ridiculous and turbulent times like this. Now let me insert something from last week that the Lord showed me this week. Um, Let me remind you of the verses. Uh, The 72 came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, "I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I think Jesus is saying, yes, I've given you this power over the authority of the enemy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Now, I really don't think Jesus was saying, don't have any joy in this. You're wrong for doing that. Stop doing that. I think what he was saying was, instead of finding your joy in ministry success... Find your joy in your relationship to God. Find your joy in the fact that I have adopted you into my family. That I have forgiven you of your sins and embraced you. Because when we minister to people, sometimes we're going to have success. Sometimes we're going to have failure (laughs) from a human perspective. Because, um, look, John MacArthur was telling a story the other day of how he invested months and months and months into... um, discipling personally discipling this little small group of people three or four people he said at the end of all those months I mean can you imagine that going and hanging out with John MacArthur every day for for weeks and weeks and being discipled what I wouldn't give for that well all four of these dudes bugged out went crazy left the church a couple of them left the faith I mean it was just it was a terrible disaster from a human perspective Sometimes we're going to have failures in ministry, and if we have our joy anchored there, we're not going to have joy. Our joy has to be anchored in the fact that we're doing the Father's will and that He knows what He's doing and that we have a relationship with God that can't be changed. Our joy will ebb and flow instead of remain constant if we, if we attach it to temporary things. So we need a constant source of joy that is immovable. Ministry success is not going to be that. All right, back to to this week's verses. Not only does Jesus rejoice in the Father's will. That's the first thing. Jesus finds his joy in the Father's will. The second thing is Jesus rejoices in the Son's authority. And yeah, I could have said in his authority, but I'm trying to point out that Trinitarian nature (laughs) of the passage. Luke 10.22 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus' authority is final and supreme. What does Jesus say has been handed over to him by his Father? All things. What about American politics? All things. What about your finances? All things. All things. Now why did the Father hand over everything to the Son? Because he alone is worthy. We, this amazing passage in Revelation discusses this. John was there. He was having a vision of this heavenly scene where uh, he saw God the Father. And in his right hand was a, was a scroll. And he saw an angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look onto it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is why the Father has handed over all things to the Son. So, when you are watching news and freaking out, let me tell you, it is under control. It's not under my control or your control, but it is absolutely under the sovereign control of God the Father who has given all things to God the Son. Look back with me at Luke ten twenty two. It says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. All right. There is a doctrine taught here um, that inexplicably to me gets people riled up. So let me just tell you how it is <laughs> from what we're reading Here. This says, all things have hand, been handed to me by my Father, and that's Jesus talking, right? And then he says, nobody knows me or my Father except the Son. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's true. Some people get mad about that and don't like it. I really don't understand why, because I'll tell you in a moment, it's a very balanced doctrine. That is the doctrine of sovereign election. That means that God chooses people, grabs a hold of them like he did Paul. You know Paul was going down the road and he wasn't looking for God, was he? He got knocked off his horse and God said, hey, Jesus said, hey, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't searching out God. He was going on his happy way and God interrupted his life and chose him. Now, let me give you the balance to that, though. In Matthew 11, we have a parallel account of this passage. And it says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Got the same exact thing there. And then you know what Jesus says? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus does not say, come to me all who are the elect. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. So, the wonderful thing about this doctrine is that if you are saved... You give 100% of the credit to God because that's the one who deserves it. Another wonderful thing about this passage is if you want to be saved, you can be saved. Does he put any limits on who comes? Those who know they need to come are the ones He limits, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are laboring and heavy laden. The offer of the gospel is to you. If you want it, you may have it. But at the same time, we can understand from a study of scripture that if we do have it, it is because of the graciousness and the goodness of our sovereign God. And we can worship him for that. Instead of saying, how great thou art and how pretty darn good I am, (laughs) we can just say, how great thou art, right? That's what this doctrine teaches us. If you're saved, it is to God's credit. If you're lost, it's because you don't want to come. That's why we preach the gospel to everybody, because Jesus invites everybody. So Jesus rejoices in the Father's will, he rejoices in his own authority, and Jesus rejoices in the blessing of the saints. In verses 23 and 24, he says, then turning to the disciples. So Jesus is talking to everybody, and then he turns to the disciples and privately says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to you, and he takes joy in that. When you find your joy in your relationship to God, it gives joy him joy and it gives him glory. So, what does it do when a believer is grumpy and complaining and miserable and has their eyes fixed on the problems of the world? Well, instead of honoring God and praising God and giving God joy and glory, well, it dishonors God. So, If you've had a bad week, I understand. (laughs) If you are unhappy about our current politics, I understand. If you are suffering with cancer, I understand. You're not going to be happy, but you can have joy because of the one who is in charge and because the one whose kingdom every other one will eventually bow down to. I'm not saying that we need to be giddy all the time. If you were Gideon here today, I would think you were uh, on some chemical. <laughs> okay. I would think something was wrong with you. Uh, but we can have joy that transcends anything that's happening right now. We can have joy that remains forever because we find that joy in the good Father's will, in the power of the Son. And then we, if we don't have joy, then we're withholding some joy uh, from other people and we're withholding honor from God because he has created us to be joyful in the fact of our relationship with him now let me tell you how you get into that relationship guys we sinned against a holy God if you sinned against me you might could say well get over it you're a sinner too and I'd say well you're right I am and I probably ought to get over it but God is holy and righteous and we sinned against him and there's no way to make perfect somebody that's Become imperfect. There's no way to take a bottle of ink and throw it on a wedding dress and then say, Oh, let me fix that. You can't fix it. It's messed up then. So we've sinned. We've transgressed. And God, in His holiness and righteousness, has to punish sin. If a judge just let people off without any justice, we think that was a really bad judge. So God's not like that. He's perfect and holy and righteous. And so He punishes sin. So man, we've got a problem because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what he did was he sent his son to live a perfect and pleasing and righteous life. And then he's willing to trade us credit for that life and take our sins on Jesus who paid for it on the cross. That's the gospel. It's that, it's that simple. It's that profound. And so you can go from an enemy of God at war with God to one who is beloved and accepted and given the righteousness of Christ before God the Father. So let me tell you, if you've not done that, you need to do that. If you have done that, all right, listen up. If you have done that, that needs to be the source of your joy that nobody and nothing can mess with. Amen.